Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. Hits it inside the park. Home run. Doug Glanville. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte. Skinny Jason Stark <laughs> is against humanity. Take away the human elements of Starkville. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for The Athletic. And as always, joined by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, Doug Glanville. And we do this every week. So if you enjoy listening, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're a fan of our show, you know what would be really cool? If you would also give us a review. Thanks very much. So, Doug, can you believe we have reached the last week of the season? I mean, wow. I mean, yes. Wow. I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to think of like, <laughs> you know, it's like what I envision of climbing like Mount Everest or something. Like you, and then you slide down on the back end, you know, like what? I mean, all of a sudden we're in playoff and you're like, wait a minute, the season's over? I mean, it took so long to just get yeah. started. So I'm trying to like digest, you know, it's almost like this whiplash effect. You're like, okay, who's going to make it through? Who's the, and then you look up and you're like, teams are already eliminated and clinching. And, you know, it's like, it's like we went right from opening dates at magic numbers. Something feels very quick about that. Yeah. It, it really does feel like this season started like 15 <laughs> minutes ago, but here we are. Um, so here's what I want to know from you. Uh, what about this last week of this season uh, has captured the attention of that hardworking brain of yours? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just I'm a, I'm looking forward to seeing all these quote wild card first round matchups, you know, uh, because I'm I'm trying to you know you always think about predicting all right who's the strongest teams and the power rankings and trying to see like who's in the driver's seat and it's really impossible to to tell right now so in some ways it is truly a new season right it's a okay that was cool but all it was was we're jockeying for position and when you have the mentality of you know like our legacy in this game right 162 games you've definitely earned your right to be there because you've done it over such a long period of time and now you you know there's teams like the Dodgers that hey great year but you lose two out of three, you're going home. And and so in some ways, it's exciting for all these these cities to realize and, t- and their supporters to realize that they have an opportunity, right? They could just do something. Cr- like the Cincinnati Reds could like win the World Series. Like I have no idea. <laughs> so they get That's hot, true. they get their pitching, their bats come around, whatever it is. So so I think in, in that way, it's been exciting. I mean, 2020 is, I think it's been fun because – so many things. I mean, our whole show this season has just been about, I've never seen that before, <laughs> times 10. <laughs> and I mean, it's to the point where I've gone back and tried to like reverse engineer impossible things happening, like strike out, catcher throws to the left fielder and gets the force play at third. Like, I don't know. Why not? <laughs> so uh, I've, I've that part has been fun. I know the health crisis loom, but they seem to have you know made it pretty well through overall. And in the end, we just got some really wacky, innovative baseball that 
is going to probably have a wacky, innovative playoff season. No, no kidding. Uh, now, uh, here's my thing to watch. Uh, yesterday, got a text uh, in the morning from a broadcaster for one of the teams in in contention, and he said, "What's our magic <laughs> number? I I can't even figure it out." So we tried and. Like you need, you literally need to walk into uh, some math professor's office at MIT and say, "Figure this out," because I tried to figure out the National League postseason matchups. <laughs> Good luck. All right, I'm going to run through this with you quick. The Dodgers are the one seed, right? Yeah. Got that? Who would they play? Oh, well, that's easy. It would either be the Reds, the Cardinals, the Brewers, the Giants, the Phillies, the Marlins, and that's <laughs> right. the Rockies. Okay, good. Uh, the Cubs are the two seed. Uh, they're in a dead heat with the Braves. So who would those two teams play? Easy. Either the Reds, the Cardinals, the Brewers, the Giants, the <laughs> Phillies, or the Marlins. Uh, at least we know the Padres are locked in as the four seed. Who would they play? The second place team with the next best record. Ah, but who's that? Oh, either the Reds, the Cardinals, the Brewers, the Phillies, or the Marlins. Okay. Even the Mets and the Rockies are within two and a half and three games of a wild card spot as we're recording this. So if they went out, they could possibly get in. So in other words, you have a 15-team league with three teams out of contention with a week to go. Uh, And I think that's good. I think that's what they had in mind. But then I also think you know all those teams, the Reds, the Cardinals, the Brewers, the Giants, the Phillies, and the Marlins? Any of them could still finish with a losing record, right? So should they? Should those teams be playing in the postseason? I think that sounds like a great question to ask our guest this week, don't you think? So it's time to welcome in our very special guest, a man with more Emmys than Schitt's Creek. It's the, it's the one, the only... Bob Costas. Bob, thanks for making a return trip to Starkville. How are you? Hey, Jason. Hi, Doug. I'm good. All right. Yeah, well, Bob was just huddling with his landscaper, I know. Do you have any update on the land you've been scaping? Uh, Well, I myself am not particularly adept, but the landscaper, this is what he does for a living. So my wife and I just express our wishes and he carries them out. We thought we needed a little more color. It was a lot of green, but we uh-huh. thought maybe we needed, you know, a little white and a little rose red and a little purple, something that kind of makes it pop, yeah. so to speak. So so that's what we would work at. Sounds lovely. And you're not going to yeah. be planning any of that color yourself. We know that. Uh, no, as I was telling you earlier, I think it's important <laughs> that a person knows their limitations. And I established my boundaries when I was about 12 years old. <laughs> Look, if, if, I'm, if I'm driving... And all of a sudden, I realize I've got a flat tire. I have three options. One, get the jack out of the trunk and fix it myself. All right. That option is about the same as me tightrope walking across the Grand Canyon. <laughs> right. It's theoretically possible, but not advisable. Second, I've got the AAA card in my wallet. I haven't left it home. The cell phone hasn't lost its charge. And I can call AAA and wait for them by the side of the road. Or third, failing all that, I just abandon the car and buy a new one (laughs) because I can't fix the damn thing. I can't. And the same thing applies to the landscaping. You know, (laughs) I know what I can't do. 
I know what I can't do. And I, I've, often, I've often thought, were I not married and were my wife not especially adept at all these household things, I would probably be one of those people who lives in a hotel. <laughs> right. I realize in, in COVID, that's really not possible. But, but you know, you, you live in a hotel. There are hotel residences yeah. now. Oh, yeah. You can actually have an apartment in a hotel. But then you get all the services. Right. Right? That's right. You can call room service. Right. You don't have to you don't have to worry about, oh, gee, it looks like it looks like the trellis needs to be fixed or <laughs> it looks like this. Or that. No, they they take care of it. I realize it's all included. You know, you're probably paying more than you should. But I know that I can't handle these things. I just I, I exist better in my own little cocoon. Yeah. And it's worked for me so far. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad to hear you say this because I am world famous for being inept at everything. <laughs> so, so to have you that I can cite, hey, it's not just me. Bob Costas is as inept as me. This is huge. This is life changing. Here's the thing. If, if you are good at one thing and lucky enough to have been born in an age when that thing can be a profession, yeah. then, you know, then like, does, does, anybody, does anybody really ask Reggie Jackson, if he can paint, I mean, it's a bonus. I mean, we know that Ted Williams was really a good fly fisherman and he was a fighter pilot. I mean, that's just, that's beyond. How can a guy be that good at three different things, like at the top of the tier? But if you can do one thing really well, does, does, any, does anybody really ask Chris Rock if he can fix your VCR? And it shows you what a VCR. No one has a VCR anymore. All right. That, the, the DVR doesn't work. Can you fix my TV, Chris? I got a feeling Chris maybe has a routine about that. Yeah. You know, Seinfeld doesn't have to know how to fix all the cars he's got in that garage somewhere outside New York. He really doesn't have to. He made enough money that he just owns them and someone else will tune them up. Yeah, well, in the pandemic, uh, Bob, I uh, I caulked my bathroom. Very proud of that moment. Yes. Um, so I feel like the pandemic I, I, has forced me to enter new skills and I've accepted wow. how bad they may be, but at least the leak was fixed. So I feel next level because of that. I've added to the repertoire. You know, I, 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 I'm impressed by that. And I've often said of myself, if I had been born a century prior, if I'd been born mid 19th century rather than mid 20th century, thus there was no radio, there was no television. I would have been, you know, like the village idiot. I would, nothing I could like, it be a blacksmith. <laughs> but it could be plowing the north forty. I would do much more harm than good. I'd just be someone wandering aimlessly around and they'd say, Hey, see that guy over there? He can recite all, all the presents. Of course at that point they don't give about sixteen of them, but he's good for that. But there's no actual there's no actual profession attached to these weird little skills that I happen to have. And luckily there was a market for it. So, but there you go. You, you, you would have been like the, oh. the town crier kind of yeah, guy, yeah. right? You'd have been standing right, on the yeah, corner just reading, reading poetry and making announcements. <laughs> hear ye, hear ye. Hey, well, speaking of hear ye, hear ye, let's talk baseball. Uh, yeah, that's a good idea. That's a, that's a weird segment, segue, uh. but... Uh, look, the last time we had you on, uh, the crazy 60-game season had not right. yet started. Uh, now yeah. it's almost over. So Doug and I were just uh, talking about the insanity, like just at the National League, where all, it's the last week of the season, all but three teams are still alive. We have mm -hmm. no idea who's playing who in the first round. Uh, so 
like nobody puts stuff in perspective better than you do. So what do you think? How should we be looking at this season with a week to go? I'm good with all of it because everybody understands these are unique circumstances. Sometimes the word unique is used improperly. It really means unusual or remarkable or something, but true meaning of unique. This is a unique set of circumstances. So is it fair if a team with the best record in the league has to play a two out of three with the eighth qualifier in the league, a crapshoot two out of three? Of course not. And you'd never go for that over a full season. But this season, I'm good with any of it. It's interesting on its own terms. And this is what I have to say at this point with a week to go in the regular season. I tip my cap to them because we all thought this was a series of needles to be thread, threaded. And the odds were against being able to thread them all successfully to get from point A to point B. And we especially thought that after the Marlins and then the Cardinals. Uh, it looked like the whole thing might collapse at any point, And they persevered. They got through it. Uh, and I've got to give them a tremendous amount of credit, them being baseball overall, including the commissioner's office. But I think what happened after, I, I think what happened with Clevenger and Plesak was a bit of a turning point. Even though they didn't spread the virus, as it turned out, they broke protocols. And both baseball and the Indians made it clear, we don't care who you are. We, we're not putting up with this. This is serious. You're endangering not only your teammates, you're endangering the game. You're endangering the business. You know, so they both get sent to the to the minor league holding cell and then, Cle <laughs> and then Clevenger gets dealt. I thought that was an important statement. Now, I don't, I don't think that that was the sole reason Clevenger was dealt, but I think it helped nudge him toward the door. They're going to get through this. Um, and it, it'll be... No, no one's going to look at these seasonal percentages or totals the same way as they would a full season. But knowledgeable fans will recognize it. They'll have their own mental asterisk next to it. But what, what any of these people are doing, what any of these league leaders are doing, it's legitimate on its own terms. So, so you don't think that if Luke Voigt hits two more homers mm -hmm. and then we multiply times two times seven – that he would go down with Ruth and Maris as the only 60 homer guys in the history of the Yankees? I do not. <laughs> I do not. I think... I, I, I wanted I, you to I, carry I, a I Luke Voigt card in your wallet. You would make the necessary, the necessary mental adjustment. Yeah, I think we will. All right, but, but look, it's still far from out of the question. We could have a team with a losing record make it into this postseason. Now, assuming you don't... You don't yeah. count the 1981 split season because of the strike. It's yeah. never happened. Um, so if you were the, say, the emperor of baseball and a losing team or a team with a losing record made it to the postseason, would you be saying we can't ever let this happen again? Um, I would take it as an important learn learning moment for constructing a new playoff format going forward. Like I said, this year, whatever happens, happens. Everybody has to understand. They had to just get through it. They had to create varying incentives. It all makes sense to me in this moment. But it seems inevitable that they're going to expand the playoffs. So let me preface this by saying that I and maybe you guys 
would be perfectly fine with the present format. When they added the second wild card, it addressed not all, but most of my objections to the first wild card because you created an important distinction between finishing first and being the wild card. With a single wild card, not only did you not sufficiently disadvantage somebody to finish 10 games behind the team they're facing in the playoffs, but you also removed the element of drama when teams came to the wire neck and neck if you knew that whichever one lost would still be the wild card and it wouldn't make all that much difference. So the second wild card substantially addressed the problems with the first wild card. It seems, though, that baseball is intent for reasons of additional postseason television revenue, for reasons of creating more of an incentive for more teams to compete, so fewer teams tanking or trading off players at midseason. Um, okay, those are legitimate concerns, but how do you go about it? One idea that was floated was to just give the best of the three division winners a buy, then you throw the other two division winners in with four wild cards. So there would have been 14 total playoff teams under that proposal as opposed to the 16 in this one-off season. Well, last year, three teams in the American League won 100 games. All three division winners won 100 games. If you're throwing them in, in a best two out of three, even if you get all three home games at home, all three playoff games at home in the wild card round against a team that was barely 500 or even in some seasons under 500. This isn't basketball where home court means a lot under normal circumstances, not in the bubble, but under normal circumstances. This is baseball where a team that wins the pennant could be an all time great team will likely have lost two out of three during the course of the long season at home against some team that's barely 500. That's way too much of a crapshoot. Plus, it removes, with that many wildcard teams, it removes the meaning and the drama of finishing first when you've always got the fallback of being one of the wildcards. So if you're going to create a, a format that both honors the importance of the regular season, not just traditionally, but the meaning, you're going to play that many games, it has to have some meaning, but also expands uh, the number of playoff teams I like an idea that I first heard from the White Sox owner, Jerry Reinsdorf. All three division winners are past the wild card round. They're waiting for someone to emerge from the wild card. You have four wild card teams. One plays four, two plays three on the home field of the higher seed. It's a single elimination. The two winners play on the home field of the highest seeded survivor. You got to go 2-0 and to get out of the round. Now you're the wild card team and you take on the best of the three division winners. What I would do under that format, which by the way, accomplishes two things. You add maybe three things. You add more playoff teams. You give television the elimination games they want. Remember in a two out of three, the first game is not an elimination game. These are all one game knockouts. You've created a much higher hill to climb for the wild card. If we're concerned about the World Series ending up in early November, cut back from 162 to 156. That's one three-game series at home for each team. The additional revenue is made up through television. And then I would make the division series, instead of best out of five, make it best out of seven. So there's additional postseason revenue. When you think about it, why should the only round guaranteed to include the wild card team and the third best division winner 
be the one subject to the flukiest result, especially when you have two off days in a series that goes five games. So the pitching situation is much different than it would be even in a best of seven, let alone during the regular season. So what I would do in that circumstance, when the second and third best division winners play, it's your standard 2-3-2 best of seven. But when the wild card meets the best team, it's 2-2-3. So now you further disadvantage the wild card, which is the right way to go. You further advantage the best team in the league. I realize the road team won all seven games in last year's World Series, but that's kind of fluky. And it is an advantage to have the home field. And I don't care if you're a wild card team that won 100 games and the team that won your division won 105. You're a really good team, you won 100 games. But the whole point of a long season and a division race is to win it. If you don't win it, you've come in through the side door. And so you should be subject to the crapshoot of the wild card round and to a subsequent disadvantage if you survive the wild card round. But a team that won its division over 162 or 156, in this case, that achievement has to be protected. And I think what Reinsdorf suggested would accomplish both. It would modernize, but actually further emphasize the traditional meaning of the pennant race, more so than it is now. I mean, we, I, I think you ran this bias last time you were here i know you talked to our friend ken rosenthal about it for a story that yeah. he wrote uh last week in the athletic and it really is an ingenious plan um there's a lot to to kind of sift through here's here's one of the things to sift through um if you look at what they've done this year and i think what what they've alluded to doing beyond this year it's to try to get away from the single elimination game, the one game knockout. And I, as somebody who's covered a lot of those games, there's an incredible atmosphere at those games. There's unbelievable drama and pressure in the air. But the pain of losing in, those, in that one game situation is more intense than anything I've ever witnessed. Um, I was both of those games, for example, where the Pirates got Madison Bumgarnered and Jake Arrieta. And so one of the things I, it feels like they're trying to get away from is to not allow a great team to be Madison Bumgarnered. So that's, so that's just one area. How yeah. would you answer that? Well, no system is perfect. This one is better than the one that's been suggested. Uh, and you know what? If you don't win your division then you've got to be subject to either the exhilaration or the heartache of winning or losing that one game. And if television and fans love the elimination game, under the plan that Reinsdorf suggested, you'd go from two of them to six of them. And you'd right. get it over quickly before the division series started. And then this part wasn't Jerry's idea, this is mine. Expand the division series to best of seven. Um, cut back a little bit on the regular season to make room for it. And make that series as meaningful as the LCS on the World Series. Yeah, and Bob, I think, uh, and to me, part of the key will also be the timeline between the wild card in that, in that sort of structure and playing that divisional series, right? Because all of a sudden, mm -hmm. you know, if you're sitting out for seven days, right, and you have, you're, even though you're trying to set up like Verlander to start game one, he sits out nine days, uh, that could also work against that team that had earned that right. So I think you know, the, how condensed it could be could be important so that they get to that series where you still have that advantage of, if you want to call it momentum, I guess you could say, for the division teams. Yeah, Doug, I've always felt that it's obviously an advantage to have a bye. It's also an advantage 
to have enough rest to get your rotation in order in case you had to go to the wire to win your division. So you want enough rest to just kind of get things in order, but not so much that you get rusty. Under this plan, you play these games quickly. These series would start two days at most after um, after the end of the regular season. And you play some in the afternoon, some at night, so the first round is over with. And then you'd play the, the, the remaining knockout game the next night in whatever city. So, And then you could start. So let's say the season ends on a Sunday. You would start the division series no later than on a Friday and maybe in some cases on a Thursday. And that's enough to get your pitching in order, but not enough for everybody to get rusty. And Bob, I guess, you know, a lot of this relates to the, the small sample size that we're looking at 2020, right? The challenge. And, you know, you're one of the great storytellers of sports. And you've, you know, you've seen the tradition that we're talking about, 162 games. All of a sudden, we're faced with this 60-game world. Um, and so we had Mark Shapiro, the Blue Jays, on. And we talked about what it means, you know, what it's meant for their strategy in having this shorter mm -hmm. season. And most of which he referenced was sort of a margin of error. It's like you, you still approach things in a similar way, but you realize that your predictability has gone down. So I guess I, I guess the question I have is what, what have you found in the magic of the small sample size that 2020 is really revealing to us in your storytelling? Uh, you know, the quirkiness of it. When we look back on it, or when our children look back on it, uh, it'll be part of baseball lore. It'll be tucked into the whole fabric of baseball history. It'll be viewed differently. It won't be as legitimate um, as full seasons, but it's legitimate on its own terms because it was dictated by external circumstances. But Mark's point is correct. You know, uh, maybe Luke Voigt, <laughs> would not sustain his pace and hit 60 home runs. But in a short period of time, um, it's interesting on it, on its own terms. And, and I think in the analytics guys, I don't have to sit there and, and look at all of it, but in a general concept, I'm sure that the analytics guys are figuring out what makes sense in the short term, especially with pitching. You know, do you, do you have to pull a guy after five or even six innings automatically the way you would if he's part of your regular rotation and you're trying to save him over 162. There are some guys that just are not effective at all after the fifth inning and the analytics show it third time through the batting order, all that stuff. But there are other times where you're trying to manage innings, but you don't have to manage them in the same way anymore. Pitching depth, it seems to me, I haven't made a study of this. This is just my impression. Pitching depth is the single most important thing um, in this short season. And I don't think it's a fluke that a team like the Tampa Bay really well because they have three horses at the top of their rotation, but they've also had a versatile and deep pitching staff always. And they use the opener and they've been, they've been very creative about the way they do that. And so I think they were well situated to begin with to excel under these circumstances. You know, since Doug brought up Mark Shapiro, um, I want to circle back to the, the postseason because we also asked him about that. Um, look, Rob Manfred said this again last week, that this isn't going to be the only year that they expand the number of teams in the postseason. Uh, they would love to do this permanently. And the question is how? I mean, you just delineated a plan, but 
you alluded to the, this, this other plan that's been kind of kicked around, which is instead of expanding to 16 teams, expand to 14 teams. And we asked Mark about expanding the playoffs. He brought that plan up. So I, w- I want to let you hear what he had to say, and then you can mm-hmm. react to it. Okay. Do I think that there are positive uh, outcomes of expanding the playoffs, even though I do think we have to be extremely careful not to dilute you know, the meaning of what it means to get in? Yes. Um, so I, I go back to kind of the, the ideas that were being thrown out uh, to the competition committee, which I sit on in, in some other circles. Um, you know, I like the idea of the, you know, the best record getting a bye. I like the idea of some other teams getting a chance to pick who they play against. I think that's could be intrigue, could be. But more than anything, um, I like us being open-minded to some change in the game and some differences that, that potentially could engage people that might not otherwise engage. Yeah, uh, before I ask you about it, Bob, let's just explain what he's talking about. This would be a plan where seven teams in each league yes. would make it. The one seed would get a bye and not have to play in that best of three round at all. Then the two seed and the three seed would get to pick their opponents. So you'd also have a selection show on that last Sunday night of the regular season. Tell me what you like and don't like about that. Well, as I said earlier, what I don't like is that it doesn't respect the meaning of the regular season. And I think you have to be careful. It's annoying to me and always has been annoying to me when people look at it only as a binary question. Do you like this or are you a purist? Are you a traditionalist? Are you telling me to get off my lawn? Do you want baseball to be like it was in 1947 so that everybody came to the game in a suit and tie and women got in for a quarter on ladies day and maybe you took a trolley car to the game and all the world series games were in the daytime and none of them were on television would that make you happy bob well look you're talking to someone that's stupid how where do you begin the conversation the the question is not whether baseball should change and modernize it should and it has over the years the question is do you do it in a thoughtful way Or do you reach, in your rush to modernize, do you reach the wrong side of a tipping point and begin to undermine the things, the good things, that separate baseball from other sports? If we think that this selection show on Sunday night, while the winner of the American League Central, someone from the Minnesota Twins front office strokes his chin and says, well, do I want to take on, do I want to take on the (laughs) Mariners? Well, they had a worse record than than the uh, Tigers did. But on the other hand, they might start the lefty. And I have a sheet right here that says that we are 10 percentage points less good against lefties than we are against righties. Ooh, it's quite a conundrum. What will I do? If you think that that's going to capture America the way a camera in a dorm at Gonzaga when they find out whether they're a one seed or a three or they got to go in the same bracket as Duke or they avoid Duke and they got to go to UCLA. If you think that that's going to have the same effect on American baseball fans, I, I think you're actually turning your back on what makes baseball great and in a desperate effort to embrace other stuff, not only do you not get the benefit, but you're undermining and diminishing what baseball is. The regular season has to matter, not just in terms of the integrity of the competition, but the drama of that competition. 
if it doesn't matter all that much whether you're a 100 win division winner unless you're the very best of the three or you're a team that's snuck in through the side door if that doesn't matter all that much then i don't think people are going to feel the same way about a game in july let alone a game in the last week in september Oh, what would yeah, what would happen if the manager said, "You know what? I want to play Seattle because they have the best smoked salmon," and and just do a whole <laughs> st- salmon show after that? I'd watch that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, there's lots of reasons well, to prefer. <laughs> On the other hand, wait a minute. If you're the team selecting, then the Mariners are coming to you. You're not going to them. This is true. <laughs> Bring the salmon no with salmon. you. <laughs> you know, that brings something to mind. You know. Uh, I'm not speaking now from the player standpoint, but through the years, this has happened to everybody who's ever done games on a national basis, which is they're rooting against my team. So Joe Buck apparently hates both teams that are in every World Series, both teams that are in every Super Bowl. I guarantee you, none of us has ever received a letter or in these days email or heard on Twitter, dear Mr. Costas, Buck, Musburger, Tarico, <laughs> Michaels, Nance. I am neither a fan of the Florida Marlins nor the Cleveland Indians. I live in Tacoma and my team is the Seattle Mariners. Thus, I had no rooting interest in the 1997 World Series. But, Mr. Costas, I must tell you, you were extremely unfair to Cleveland and you were clearly <laughs> in favor. Never. However, we have all received exactly the same communication. The words are virtually identical, except insert Marlins or Cleveland. You're listening to the same thing. You're watching the very same thing, but you're convinced that I or whomever else has it in for your team. Now, let me tell you what is really true for 99% of us, and this may apply to writers as well. We root for the best and most dramatic outcome. We're not talking about team announcers. The Mariners' voice wants the Mariners to do well. The Cardinals' voice wants the Cardinals to do well. They may make that more or less clear. You know, Harry Carey was a bit more of a homer than, than other announcers are, and that, you know, you have that. But clearly, they have a vested interest in their team doing well. What the network announcer wants is the most dramatic possible outcome. So if you're doing a World Series or an NBA final and one team wins the first two games, you want the other team to win the third game. Not because you care who wins overall but because you want the thing to be dramatic. You want it to go seven games, and you want the seventh game to go extra innings, or if it's the NBA, you want it to go overtime. The only possible difference would be there are times when certain storylines are more compelling than others. But even then, if you've done a lot of games on network television, you know how to approach that professionally. So you're rooting for the best of the most dramatic outcome, and then we're also rooting for our own convenience. Whether you know that or not, to Doug's point, some of us want to go to Seattle. Maybe we have friends and relatives there. Maybe we got better restaurants there. The Four Seasons Hotel in Seattle is really good. Okay, so yeah, that that we have that in mind. What's the flight situation? Do I have to take it? What what what's the most convenient thing for me? <laughs> that's, that's pretty. Much, it's not really a rooting interest for one team or another. We're rooting for ourselves. There's the full confession. Yeah, and Doug's introduced a really important element. We root for salmon. <laughs> yeah. That's a known fact. Tim salmon. Tim salmon. I've rooted for him too. Yeah. 
Hey, Starkville listeners, Evil Mayor Tim here. We'll get back to the interview with Bob Costas in a minute, but what a time to be a sports fan. MLB playoffs around the corner, the NBA playoffs and NHL playoffs are here, and the NFL football season is underway. You can get all the sports stories that matter for just $1 a month. Don't miss exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season. Subscribe now and save. Sign up now to see for yourself the creativity, reporting, and storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com slash Starkville, you can receive an all-access subscription for just $1 a month. Sports are back, and you won't want to miss breaking stories on your favorite team. So go to theathletic.com slash Starkville and receive an all-access subscription for just $1 a month. We hope to see you there. I want to ask you about like what we're about to see this year and whether baseball should be doing something about that this year. Like, think about the Dodgers. Uh, the Dodgers have a winning percentage that if you drew it out over 162 games would be up there with the greatest winning percentages single season mm-hmm. in the history of baseball. And yet in the first round, what is their reward? Best of three series at home with no fans, potentially against the Reds. Uh, Trevor Bauer in game one with his sub two ERA. Luis Castillo in game two with his 1.2 ERA this month. Mm-hmm. Um, this does not seem fair to me. Uh, how, how worried should baseball be about a scenario where the best team in the sport this year doesn't survive this round that they just invented yeah. for this occasion? And even if they get past this two out of three at Dodger Stadium, after that, they're never at home, including through the World Series. After that, they'll be in Houston or or Arlington, um, because that's the way they've they've set it up. And that, it, but it all makes sense. It makes sense under these circumstances. I think where the Dodgers, let's say, getting knocked out in a two out of three should concern baseball isn't from the standpoint this one year of competitive fairness because everybody understands this is a makeshift situation doing the best they can under unique one-off circumstances what should concern them is that they want the dodgers as the best team and as a big market team they want them to get through to the world series because that would that would affect the ratings the ratings are going to take a hit no matter what they've taken a hit in the nfl and the nba for a variety of reasons there's multiple dynamics at play there um but they'd be higher if marquee teams met, that's just a reality. Yeah, I, I mean, one thing that I actually ran past uh, somebody in baseball is, shouldn't the wild card team have to win twice and that great first place team only have to win once in a scenario like this? And like their response was, well, it's a little late to change those rules now, but yeah. is it? Well, you could also have a situation where the difference between the wild card and that division winning team is more stark. Uh, the Dodgers and the Reds would be a good example. But what if they're fairly close? What if they're fairly close? And they haven't played like opponents because everything is, is regional not. this year. So how would you delineate the difference between some team that was eight games better than another and some team that was one game better than another as to whether that second team would have to win two instead of one. I, I, I mean, I, I get use... your point. I'm all for it. I've been all for it all the whole time that you have to make it harder in one way or another for the wild card than for a team that's prevailed over 162. But this year, I may have said this to you the last time I was on with you. This year, I'm good with everything short of running the bases clock. <laughs> 
Well, and speaking of that, Bob, like, okay, now we've seen the season. We've seen at least most of it now. Uh, what stays? What do you think stays? What should go? I mean, you like the ghost runner. You like the DH. You like the, you know, three pitch, you know, three minimum batter, three batter minimums. And I mean, mm-hmm. what are you finding that you really think should stay on and other things you're like, okay, that's a temporary fix. I don't like the runner on second base. It feels gimmicky to me. Some of these things, including the pitcher having to face three hitters unless he concludes an inning, comes in, maybe gets one out, and the inning is over. These things are meant to address a fundamental baseball problem, which is that the game has gone from what used to be an asset, a pleasing leisurely pace, to a too often lethargic pace. But these things are like putting a Band-Aid on a wound that's hemorrhaging. We're going to point to first base on an intentional walk. On average, there's one intentional walk per game. That isn't going to change the fundamental problem that we have four to two games that the home team may win so they go eight and a half innings, and somehow they last three hours and 45 minutes because more than half the outs are strikeouts. And if you've got that many strikeouts, and common sense tells you you've got deep counts, all the rest of the outs aren't coming on, the, on first pitch contact. That's part of the problem. And it's a deeper problem than we can solve here because what analytics tell us and what we're emphasizing both for pitchers and for hitters works against baseball as an entertainment product. So now in an effort to uh, remedy that, we're going to fiddle with the essence of the game. I don't think pointing to first base on an intentional walk really hurts the essence of the game, although it does undermine drama, by the way. You're watching a game. Right now, the guy in the on deck circle has been dissed. Right? <laughs> is he going to come up? Is he going to come up and redeem himself? Or if they're you know equally good right-handed hitter, we're going to walk him because we got a lefty on the mound. Equally good left-handed hitter was that a good move, a bad move? We got time to discuss this. That's the essence of baseball. You know, that's a little a little texture to the game that that's removed by that. But that's not that big of a deal. When baseball had an appropriate pace. The occasional long extra inning game was something you talked about. It was one of the things you look back on. You know, I, I was doing a game with John Smoltz maybe five years ago, Yankees Red Sox, and I think it went 19 innings. It was Mark Teixeira's birthday. In about the 16th, there was a pop into foul ground. He chased after it and it tipped off his glove as he got near the tarp by the railing. And I I said when he was 35, he would have gotten it, but he's 36 now and he's lost his stuff because it was 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> they, they, took, they took another shot later, and here's a guy, right? He's got a Yankee cap, and there's a girl, and she's got her head on his shoulder, and she's wearing a Red Sox cap. And, and John Small says, look at that. It's beautiful. It's detente. It's peace between rivals. And I said, no, the more interesting thing is these two only met in the fourth inning and now they're in game. <laughs> so, so, I mean, part, this is part of what's fluky. Look, Jason will love this stuff. Doug may not all. I only learned this the other day. I don't know how I came across it. The old time umpire from when we were kids, Ed Sudol, had the plate he had the plate in the 23-inning Giant Met game that was the second game of a doubleheader in 1964 oh at Shea oh on a Sunday. Second game of a doubleheader. He had the plate for the 23-inning game. That's also the game where Gaylord Perry says he first resorted to the spitball. Later on, the Astros and Mets played a 24-inning one nothing game oh. at the 
Astrodome. Ed Sudol had the play. Oh, wow. 1974, Cardinals and Mets at Shea. It goes 25 innings before Bake McBride scores from first on a wild pickoff throw, and the Cardinals win in 25 innings. Who had the plate? Ed Sudol. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, I like that stuff. Yeah, right. I like that oh, stuff. Oh, we love it here. Yeah. This is Starkville's <laughs> finest. <laughs> yeah, what, what do you think? This is all keeping us in business. But um, it's you know it's just, it's funny that you bring this up because your friend and mine and your many times broadcast partner, Jim Cott, right. has argued for seven-inning games, not <laughs> even as part of doubleheaders, seven-inning games, period. How, what have you mm. thought of the seven-inning games? Or even better, the, the the extra inning game that lasts eight. <laughs> well, what now? Now you're really going to get into some difficult circumstances, uh, because look, no one's going to hit seventy three home runs and hit a home run once every six and a half times at bat, uh, like Bonds did and McGuire nearly did without steroids. But if you don't play something close to a representative season, if you don't do that then a lot of these points of comparison, which are already kind of stretched to the breaking point, they're going to be broken completely. Uh, then you're going to have a delineation that's going to be like dead ball, lively ball. Everything's going, to, everything's going to be different. Are we going to give the guy who pitches seven a complete game? And what happens to the whole idea? And it isn't just when a no-hitter or a perfect game happens. We know that when someone takes a no-hitter to the seventh, that more often than not, he isn't going to make it all the way through. But the anticipation, you know, well, I'm not leaving now. I'm, I'm at the edge of my seat now. That anticipation is part of baseball. Is it a no-hitter if the guy goes seven? And if we know it isn't, and we know it doesn't count as a no-hitter under official baseball rules. They've made that clear this year. Yeah, but if all year. games become seven-inning games, is that a no-hitter? Is that a perfect game? Is that the same thing as what Sandy Koufax did in 1965 or what Don Larson did in the World Series? And what about the postseason? Do we want to put a guy on second base? This is how we want the seventh game of the World <laughs> Series to end, with a guy on second base after all that drama. Is this how we want Jack Morris against John Spence in 1991 to end? Let's just, let's just put this guy on second base, ground ball to the right side, then a medium deep sacrifice fly. Well, folks, the whole thing was really dramatic, and this is the way it ends. Have a good offseason. <laughs> All right, well, they're not going to use that rule in the postseason. But, I know that. Hey, I, like I actually, I wrote about this last week. Uh, the Okay, um, Garrett Cole is your American right. League leader in complete games. You know how long his two complete games went? One was part of a doubleheader that went seven innings. The other was the opening day game in Washington. They got rained out after five. It went five innings. The two complete games combined went 12 innings. And history's going to say he led the league in complete games. What do you think old Hoss Radborn would say about that, oh man? Uh, he's, he's conferring somewhere uh, on a cloud with angels strumming on harps. He's talking it over with Jack Tresbro, Tresbro and, uh, and Cy Young. Ah, these whippersnappers today. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, okay, so you're not buying that one, obviously. Pitcher, pitcher, pitchers never hitting again. You okay with that? Yeah. I don't. I don't prefer it. I like actually uh, the delineation between the American and National Leagues that there are two different styles of play. I like the strategy even in the World Series, uh, where you might you might adjust your pitching and certainly you adjust your lineup based on whether you have a DH or not. 
I mean, think think of Kyle Schwarber coming back out of nowhere in the World Series in, in 2016. Yeah. I think yeah. this is interesting stuff. I think it's interesting when a guy can hit or help himself with a bunt. Uh, I'm not saying that you have to be a rocket scientist to pull off a double switch or decide whether you should pinch hit for the pitcher or let him sacrifice in this situation, but it gives the game uh, some additional texture. Uh, however, I understand what the objections are, um, especially if you're going to have interleague games. Then American League GMs and managers are very concerned about their pitchers running the bases, and there have been some situations where pitchers wound up on the injured list because of base running mishaps, American League pitchers. I get that, and I get the idea that at every level of baseball now, except for the National League, there is a designated hitter. I, I get all that. And the Players Association would want it because the DH is generally a higher salary player. Um, and, you, you know, I get all those things, but I think something is lost uh, when pitchers don't hit in every, in every circumstance. I don't know about your conversations with uh, with fans this year, but I've been amazed how many have said to me, you know what, I thought I'd be re- I'd really hate the universal DH and I don't miss pitchers hitting. And I always say, right, but do you miss Bartolo hitting a home run? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. right? Like you miss the lore that used to come with that. How about this? You, you remember this game? Tom Verducci and I pulled it off the shelf. We were just looking for programming. Um, and we... We pulled up this game from 1985 that started on July 4th, ended on July 5th. The Mets Rick, at the, the Rick Braves. Camp game. Braves, yeah. That's right. Yes. The Rick Camp game. The Rick Camp game with two outs in the bottom of the 17th, <laughs> and they're down by a run, and they're out of pinch hitters. And Rick Camp, who had never hit a homer and had a lifetime batting average of like 060 or something, doesn't just homer, he rips the damn thing. <laughs> You know, it hit the back wall by the football bleachers in the old Fulton County Stadium, right? And then, wouldn't you know it, when the Mets finally take a larger lead in the 19th, the Braves rally again, and the Mets have to bring Ron Darling, who was supposed to be the next game starter, the next day starter, they have to bring him out to finish the game. And who winds up being the last hitter? It's Camp again. And you see Camp with Gary Carter, who caught all 19 innings, you know, he's like getting down in that crouch for the millionth time in this game. And they're looking at each other and laughing. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. But don't you don't you think that anybody who was at that game or watched that game on television, they'll never forget it. You remembered it right away. Right. You, know, you want to take all that out of baseball? I don't. Yeah, I like – I mean, I just – I do love the – it's almost like resource management in Survivor or something. You kind of want to see how these teams <laughs> handle situations under, like, stress and not having all the perfect scenarios, right? So – um, yeah, well, even even within these rules, I know we part of it is you know what the leagues can do, the league can do about improving it. But what do you what do you look forward when you think about collective bargaining? Is there is there a component about that you can see sort of enacting certain changes and and sort of like give, do you have any snapshot or previewing how twenty twenty one kind of shapes up? Doug, I would say that the the big picture takeaway ought to be. We are in this together. We know that there are historic, not just issues, but mistrust in baseball. More so, I mean, there's some in football. Uh, The NBA seems to have the best partnership between ownership, commissioner, and, and players. But some sense that, hey, if the business doesn't do well, then none of us do well. Our mutual interests here exceed our differences. 
Now let's address the differences, but not with the idea that we have to be at each other's throats. So if the owners need a concession, maybe, maybe we expand the rosters to 28 on a regular basis or whatever it is. There's always some give and take. It doesn't have to be a holy war though. It's a business negotiation. What, what do you want that I'm willing to give up, but in return for what? If, if that's the guiding principle, then they ought to be able to arrive at something worthwhile. But if every last item has to be fought to the death, which is almost what happened this spring and summer, they would have been better off starting on July 4th, and they couldn't. In this kind of public squabbling in the midst of, of uh, cultural upheaval and the pandemic, that, that did not put baseball in a good light. And they ought to take that, that as um, a lesson going forward and also with an understanding that even if, fingers crossed, um, the pandemic recedes, it's going to be a while before any sport regains and then builds upon its previous levels of revenue because people are going to have less disposable income. They're going to be a little bit leery. They'll go about essential things, but a little bit more leery about going to the movies or going to a concert or going to a ball game. So each of these sports industries is going to take a hit. So how do the players and, and owners, I mean, think of two people, and this is an extreme example. You, you mentioned the survivor <laughs> example. Let, let's, say, let's say, Doug, you and I haven't gotten along. We've never gotten along. But now we're the only two people in a lifeboat. Well, our mutual interests exceed our previous differences, don't they? <laughs> we better both pull on the end of this rope because our survival is at stake. And it's not that, quite that extreme for baseball, but the business is to a certain extent at stake. And, and both sides have to recognize that. Can we just put you in charge? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. you know, Glad we don't cleared that up. up. Because like 20 years ago, I used to hear it everywhere I went. And it was really nice that Whitey Herzog said it and George Will said it. And I'm saying to myself, you realize that not only do I not have the business acumen, I do not have the temperament <laughs> to sit in the proverbial smoke-filled rooms, twisting arms, horse trading, making deals. My, I mean, the stress would put me in a hospital within a week. No, I was never interested and I was never qualified. Yeah, and if your car, if you had a flat tire on your way to the negotiating <laughs> right. session, we know that like no. that would just cripple the negotiations. You'd be buying a new car instead of settling the strike. Point. Although if, if if I had agreed to be the commissioner, I would have insisted on a driver. Yes, yeah, I've never driven. <laughs> yeah, least, I think I, a perk like that is the least they could have done. Absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah. So all right. Well, all right. So next week, yeah, eight postseason games on Wednesday. So that's mm -hmm. okay. It's March Madness. Uh, it's October Madness. <laughs> right. It's actually September 30th, so I don't know I like September that. Madness. <laughs> but is that fun, or is it too much baseball? No, it's fun. Because, like, I'm returning to the same thing. This year, everything's a one-off. <laughs> you know, do you want it this way going forward? No. But is it is it okay on its own terms, and maybe even enjoyable if you look at it in the right way on its own terms? Yeah, I like it. I'm good with it. So, Bob, I, one thing I, I just have to think about, what's an honor is recognizing that you've been the voice of so much sports history. Uh, so I, I would like you to contextualize sort of where baseball fits in the fabric of, of culture. Like, what, what is so special of it, given you've seen and, you know, covered Olympics and Kentucky Derbies mm -hmm. and boxing and 
uh, you know, what is it about baseball that that's different, and what can it do to be more consequential to our society in these given moments? Well, that is a deep question. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could just beckon Ken Burns, you know, like, like in a Woody Allen movie, yeah. the person in question, pull Marshall McLuhan from behind a movie billboard. Here, let him answer the question. You know? um, but you know, Ken, I think Ken got to that in his in his baseball series. I don't know that baseball will ever have the primacy that it once had in American life. It once truly was the national pastime. Um, I think that's why um, when, when we think about Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier, that means more than when Woody Strode and Kenny Washington and others broke it in the NFL because people didn't look at the NFL the same way. Uh, and in the early days of the NBA, uh, it was significant, certainly, but they didn't look at it the same way. Baseball mattered more in, in those moments. And I don't know if this answers the question, but I've said this often and some people may just roll their eyes. I think for many of us with baseball, in addition to its excitement, in addition to the interest in it, there's a feeling of fondness. People may like the NFL for a lot of reasons. I've never heard someone say, you know, I have fond feelings about the NFL. <laughs> but baseball has a different charm. It has a different texture. I'll use that word again. It has a different history. There's quirkiness to it. There's because of 162 and because of the pace, there's room for humor in it. Every game isn't a spectacle. Every game isn't life and life and death. Um, some people may think that's out of pace with present American life, where everyone seems to have the attention span of a gnat, you know, so and you have to play to that, especially with millennials. And the answer to this may be that while baseball can attempt to address that gulf between what it essentially is and the tone um, and preferences of the culture, it can only go so far. It can only go so far. You know, you, you can't, you, you want people to come to the jazz concert, but, and it's, and it's a shame that, it's a shame that kids, the kids don't know Winton and Bradford Marsalis as well as they know Cardi B. But maybe you can promote it better, but do you want them to be Cardi B? Do you want them to be Lil Wayne? I mean, they, they, they shouldn't, then they can't. They change what they are. So base, baseball, baseball needs to work on pace of play, not to become like other sports, but become more like it used to be. But at the same time, you can market the game differently. I don't care if a guy bat flips. I don't think he should show the other team up. But I, 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 that exuberance, you know, when Hank Aaron hit 715, you were struck by the dignity. You know, the place was going nuts. People were coming out of the stands, literally, trying to pat him on the back. And he ran it out at the first 714. That made you admire him even more, especially considering the circumstances. But I don't expect a kid today to do it the same way as Hank Aaron did or that Mickey Mantle did, you know. But the pace of the game has to get back to the way it used to be. Maybe not exactly, but closer. That's the real problem for baseball. But can it become what it isn't? No, can't. It, you know, it is what it is. You know, you can't go to the Grand Ole Opry and, and expect and expect to hear rock and roll. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> 
Well, that is so well said. You know, it's it's a it's a good thing you live in an age where this is a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you have a you have a gift for saying stuff. Otherwise, in case nobody's otherwise, ever mentioned that. <laughs> Thank you. Otherwise, I, I'd be I'd be that guy. I'd be that guy. You know, on the street corner. You know. Yeah, like, hear ye. Oh, here he comes again. <laughs> Let me make a left here into the candy store. <laughs> right, uh, Bob. Look, we could literally talk to you about baseball all day, but we're and it in danger seems going. We just did. Yeah, we were going. We're going to go eighteen innings ourselves here. That's right. So, look, I, I know you have Emmys to win and you got tires to change, but uh, <laughs> you're you're awesome, man. Yeah, you're, you're welcome back in Starkville anytime. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Doug. I hope I made some sense. Thanks, Bob. Really appreciate it. Hey, Starkville listeners. Evil Mayor Tim here. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo, or looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We avoid it all together with excuses like I had a long day at work or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about it with a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication. It's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash Stark and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash Stark today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. That's GetRoman.com slash Stark. All right, Doug, it's time once again for one of our favorite parts of every podcast. It's listener trivia, our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. Week after week, we continue to literally invite you, our listeners, onto this podcast to stump us with your trivia questions live. And Doug, this just in. They're winning. We're losing. <laughs> Until last week, we ripped off a, a fun little two-question winning streak, but now it's back to normal, by which we mean what, Doug? Uh, down in flames, we're on a one-game losing streak currently. Um, so uh, We are. Yes. We we're two out of our last three, so I'm feeling, you know, let's, the positive. Let's work on okay, the positive. That's, all right, that, that would be the make the stats work for you way to look at our record. Uh, I don't know why I'm still keeping track of this, but people do seem to find it amusing. So uh, I think we're now at listeners nine, Glanville and Stark two. It's pretty sad. But I I actually think we can bounce back this week. Yes. We have a great question to ponder. So let's bring in this week's distinguished trivia stumper. It's Austin Gates. Austin, welcome to Starkville. I appreciate you stopping by. Now, 
Austin, I was looking at your Twitter feed just the other day, and I noticed something. You did not tweet for four years. <laughs> okay, <laughs> then you roared back onto Twitter last week with a bunch of baseball tweets, uh, including this trivia question. So you're gonna have to tell us what lured you back into the wacky world of us tweeters. Uh, well, I've, I've been lurking the whole time uh, on Twitter. I just haven't been posting. Um, and I just decided on a whim the other day to start to post again. Oh, I'm glad you did. And one of the first things you did was post a question to us. Uh, it's funny, you know, like you, you don't tweet for four years. You're back for like three days. And now here you are talking to us. <laughs> On Starkville, on the same show as Bob Costas. Doesn't that seem like proof of a better life through Twitter? Yeah, I, I suppose so. <laughs> yeah, we can never be too sure. Uh, um, all right, one more thing. Now, you you got a great question for us about Ron Gardenhire, who just retired from managing the Tigers over the weekend. H how'd you come up with this question? When I saw that uh, he had retired, I went to Baseball Reference and was looking at his managerial stats. And I saw that he managed to the Twins for a long time. And I, you know, I was thinking that not many managers do that anymore, manage a team for a long time. So that's kind of how I came up with the question. All right. Well, good, good job. Yeah, very cool. I, I want you to, yeah, I want you to understand the stakes involved <laughs> in this question. Uh, because before last week, we had somehow gotten two of these trivia questions right in a row. <laughs> and then the listeners restored order last week. So, Austin. It's now up to you to keep that listener winning streak going. You up to All that right. pressure? I can take All it. All right. You can take <laughs> it. All right. Well, time Feel the heat. Time to hit us with the question. Go for it. Uh, Ron Gardenhire won 1,068 regular season games with the Twins. Now that he's retired, there are only two active managers with more than 800 regular season wins with one team. Can you name them? Can we name them? That is the question. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's a really fun question. Uh, we're obviously not talking about 800, 800 wins with their current team because the Twins were not Ron Gardenhire's current team. So that makes us a little more challenging. Uh, thinking it through, I think one of them <laughs> has to be Joe Girardi. He had 10 straight winning seasons with the Yankees. So by definition... That's 800 wins. So now the question for me is, who's the other? Here's what I here's how I thought it through. Uh, could it be Dusty Baker? I just can't remember how many years he managed the Giants. So it could be Bob Melvin. I know he's been with the A's a really long time now. Um, there's Terry Francona in Cleveland or Boston. I don't think there's enough years in either place, but maybe... And then Joe Madden, from his time in Tampa Bay, I feel like he managed there nine years. It might even have been ten. So I'm, I'm not 100% sure in this, but I'm going to guess Joe Girardi and Joe Madden. So I got the Joes cornered. Doug, what about you? Oh, okay. So now, just FYI, how we have been doing this is – we count Starkville as one monolithic entity. So we put both of our answers together since we were getting beat down in the eight-game losing streak. 
So he would guess two, I would guess two, and of course I would pick two different ones to cover our bases. It feels it's called cheating, but Doug doesn't it feels, think it, is. it feels a little more shady when there's only like 30 <laughs> possibilities here, but you know, I'll, I'll stick with it. So, all right, so you're saying Joe Girardi and Joe Madden. You went Joe Joe, right? Yes. All right, so I will say, I'll say Dusty Baker. I think Joe Girardi is correct, but I'll say Bob Velvin. <laughs> too. So I don't know if this is fair, but uh, uh, but I, I kind of Dusty. I I think he he seemed like he was there forever. So I I think Dusty's a strong one, and Melvin's one of those under the radar like ninety win guys. You're like, wait a minute, and then he's and you look up and he's had you know five thousand wins. So um, so there we go. I'm gonna roll with that. Uh, okay, so Dusty Baker, Bob Melvin. You're not going to tell the story about Dusty asking you to cut your hair again. Uh, yeah, that's true. That I'm again. overdue for that. You know, especially because <laughs> yeah, my hair is... You haven't told that one in at least a week. Yeah, I need to. That's uh, my weekly uh, antidote. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, here's the good news about this Doug Glanville strategy of guessing twice as many answers as the actual answer. I, I, I'm pretty sure there are only five real possible answers to this question, so... We've now guessed four of them. Feels like the odds are good. Yeah, I don't this think Francona, just because of my playing days, I don't think Francona was in Boston long enough. I think yeah, he was. I think, I think he was gone. I mean, there was yeah, you know someone like I thought about like a Mike Matheny. Um, you know, some people yeah. have like snuck under the radar, but yeah. I don't know. I think those are the guys with the longevity. I know one thing. Terry Francona didn't get 800 wins with those Phillies teams. No, <laughs> 800 losses, possibly, yes. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. All right, let, let's okay. just ask Austin. All right. Uh, Austin, is there any chance that it's Joe Girardi, Joe Madden, <laughs> Dusty Baker, Bob Melvin, or some combination of those four? So between the two of you, you got it right. <laughs> Amazing. I think Dusty. What is the I actual think Dusty's answer? right. I'm going to say Dusty's yeah. right. It was Dusty Baker and Joe Girardi. <laughs> How close was Madden? Tampa Bay. Do you have it in front of you? Uh, he, he was pretty close, but he did, he, I think he was in the 700s. It's a good, it's okay. a good question. Great question. But anyway, All right. Doug, we're back. Yeah, we're back. I'm feeling good. This is three out of four now that we've actually gotten right. Uh, well, that may never happen again. That's a seven fifty <laughs> seven fifty batting average. I'm feeling pretty good. That, yeah, that's, that's... Uh, whatever. It means we're better at this than we've made it look for three months. So there's always that. Um, whatever. If you listen regularly, you know whether we get the question right or we get the question wrong. We still bring in the mayor of Starkville, Mayor Tim, to play some cool audio clip that has something to do with the question. So it's time to bring in Mayor Tim. Uh, look, I know it's tough coming up with a clip about a manager, but what'd you dig up there, my friend? We have a good one, guys. And you were right, spot on, Jason, five guys. Girardi had 910 wins with the Yankees, 840 for Dusty with the Giants, and then Melvin, 764 with the A's, Madden, 754 with the Rays, Terry Francona, 744 with the Red Sox. And then, like you said, it's kind of a a drop-off from there. So, um yeah, you guys nailed this one. Beyond the two, I think you you pretty much just summed up the entire uh, ballpark area. So we're gonna go back. Yeah. We're gonna go back to 2009 and what was probably or definitely in the conversation is Ron Gardenhire's greatest win back in his days with the Twins, October 6th, 2009, 12th inning, Tigers at the Twins, game 163. 
And a pitch bounce right side base hit. Here comes Gomez around third. There'll be no play. The Twins have won the Central. The Metrodome will not go down so easily. She will live to see a first-round matchup with the New York Yankees. Ron Garden hires Twins now with five division titles since 2002. Wow. Um, How much fun was that? That was Chip Carey and Ron Darling on the call. It was a tiebreaker game. Uh, The Twins and Tigers had tied for the division and that game was epic. It lasted like nine hours, right? <laughs> Many innings. Uh, it, just incredible drama. And Ron Gardenhire comes out of it with first place in the Central. Austin, what a fun question, man. And timely. Uh, glad you asked it. Glad you're back on Twitter. Thanks for joining us on Starkville. Thanks, Austin. Thanks very much yeah, for Yeah, I appreciate me. it, man. Remember, next week this could be you. Asking us a question and reveling in the very special thrill of having us start a brand new trivia losing streak. We'll tell you how to do that a little later in the pod. But first, one thing we try to do in this segment is use the trivia question to inspire a topic for the show. So, Doug, this week, thanks to Austin, let's talk about Ron Gardenhire because He's one of my very favorite managers from my time covering baseball. And there's so many things that I love about Guardy. Warm, friendly, very real, very genuine. Uh, just one of those people that, in the world that everybody is happy to see. And, uh, you know, for me, I, I'm that guy who's always looking for some way to make people laugh. He was just a treasure trove. He had so many great stories. And as I was thinking about which one to tell, it's so weird, the ones that you remember for no particular reason at times like this. But this is a Guardy story that always makes me laugh. I'm not even sure why. It's from like a decade or so ago. Um, It was the last spring training for one of baseball's most legendary spring training ballparks, Al Lang Field, a place that you spent much time at, Doug Hill, right? <laughs> I did. Classic. Al Lang. Yeah. So, I, I mean, Al Lang was a spring training park for longer than any other park in the history of baseball. So I was trying to re- write this remembrance of this cool, historic place that was also, how should we put this? not the most luxurious part in spring training. (laughs) So I went, I'm there working in the story one day and Ron Gardenhire and the twins pull into town and Gardy had played with the Mets when they trained there. Right. So we got to talking and I told him this story that Don Zimmer had just told me a few minutes earlier. (laughs) This is a great Zim story about a ground ball it had taken one of those inimitable Al Lang hops, and it conked him right on the head. And he got yelled at by Buzzy Bavese. So I told him the story. Guardy laughed, and he said, hey, he was just spinning some some stories about the infield at Al Lang as they were – he was hanging out in the dugout with his players as they were getting ready to go out and take BP. So he, he said, you know how many balls I missed in this park? 
He said, I was just telling the boys, boys, I made some quality errors on this field. <laughs> it just cracks me up. I don't know why, but just, but it just that was just Ron Gardenhire. He could he could make you laugh, and he he did that right to the very last day to that last press conference the other day in Detroit, as they were announcing his retirement. Uh, I'm just gonna miss that guy for the laughs and everything else. Uh, Doug, what, yeah, I mean, what, what do you have? to tell us about yeah, Ron Gardner. I, I, mean, I think, uh, well, first of all, I love quality errors. That's a, that's a good <laughs> one right there. Like, it's a, there's a, a measurement there. Uh, yeah, so I feel, um, you know, can I, the thing about Gardner is I always felt like I got to know him from afar. You know, I didn't have a lot of interaction, especially, you know, given the uh, interleague component. I was mostly National League. But the team he managed, you know, you heard the five titles in a row, um, you know, not in Rome, sorry, but five titles in Minneapolis and just representing the Twins. I mean, he was a winner and he won so many games with kind of a, a, a kind of money ballish flavor, right? As a scrappy bunch that played defense and fundamentals. And I had a, got a lot of admiration because they seemed like giant killers. They seemed like the type of team that could knock off Goliath all the time. And they, they did it with just uh, being precise and like almost embodying the the style of Ron Gardenhire. And I grew up in Jersey, so I, I kind of knew Gardenhire in the sort of Mets showcase, and he seemed to be that kind of player too. Uh, so those were more of the content. I didn't cross a lot of paths on, on the playing standpoint. But what I do remember is in covering a game recently for ESPN, it was a Tigers-Indians game with Francona managing uh, at the time when he was kind of back on the field. And uh, I think, I want to say it might have been the 100th uh, anniversary celebration for the Negro Leagues. And we did a kind of a Zoom call with Gardenhire. And I could, you know, he kept talking about, you know, where he was in this sort of pandemic world, just dealing with it. And you knew how much he was a gamer and loved baseball, but you could see the torment and the kind of pain that he was, you know, sort of torn between family and his grandkids and and the safety questions around with his own health and also just like doing what he would do for the team. You knew he was a manager that would sort of die on that hill with his team and wanted to be there for these guys uh, through thick and thin. And But you could tell through the entire interview that he was conflicted, right? And he was sort of, you know, I, you know, I kind of could tell he was weighing, okay, should I opt out and should I be in? So when I heard the news that he was, opting out with not a whole lot of games left, I, you know, I knew that the the weight of that just became unbearable. And when you're someone like Gardenhire, who is, you know, sort of defines the quintessential uh, player that, that battles through adversity and kind of champions the underdog, you knew it had to be serious. So, uh, so no question he'll be missed. I'm sure he'll be kind of back in the game in some capacity at some point. I think he loves it, but... Right now, it was just too difficult of a decision for him to continue forward. Yeah, I think you got that exactly right. Uh, you know, I uh, I talked to Guardy for a, a column I wrote just before uh, summer camp got underway this year, and I, I felt like he was wrestling with this even then. Um, on one hand, uh, he wanted to manage, and he certainly felt an obligation to his team, but he was worried about his health. He's had a lot of stuff uh, – and, you know, I, the other thing that came through, Doug, was so many of the things that he loves about managing were things he was not going to be able to do this year. He's a people person. So all those conversations with people he enjoyed being around 
uh, in the game, in his office, out on the field, uh, including conversations with people like us. He wasn't just, it just wasn't an option in this season. And uh, I, I, I just think it all added up to a situation where I think he knew the time was right. And, you know, I just want to wish that guy many years of happy times uh, in retirement because he's just a special person and uh, a beloved person in this sport. So, Guardy, I know you're not listening, but go hit some drives right down the middle of the fairway, will you? And enjoy life. <laughs> Strange but true. All right, we would hate to say goodbye without picking out the weirdest stuff we saw in the last week. So, Doug, let's start with you. Uh, I heard a rumor. <laughs> you want to talk about the most exciting play in baseball, the intentional walk. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And, uh, yeah, I've been, you know, of course, I've made it my habit in life of reading your useless info columns. In my college days in the dorm, I'd pick up the paper <laughs> and there it was. I learned about Don Carmen, you know, yeah. all the details way right. before. Uh, so, um, yeah, so this this is one of those moments where I, I read your column. And I'd love for you to set the stage because I, I'm oh, focusing okay. on Marcel Osuna. All right, I can do this. The Braves are playing the Nationals and they go extra innings. It's the 11th inning. Uh, Freddie Freeman and Marcel Ozuna are due up. And, you know, yeah, managers have interesting choices in extra innings these days. And this was one of them because Marcel Ozuna had batted five times in this game. How many hits has he gotten? Five. He was five for five. But Freddie Freeman was hitting before him. So what did Davey Martinez do? He said, you know what? I'm going to walk Freddie Freeman and pitch to this guy who is five for five. All right, Doug, I think that set the stage for you. Nicely. Yes, and it worked out. It worked out. <laughs> it did. He finally he made, made it his out. out, out. Sixth uh, plate appearance or sixth at bat. Um, yeah, so I mean, I just, so I just, this is some of the wackiness of just 2020. Like, how do you pitch, uh, walk a guy? Now, granted, Freddie Freeman, I understand he's MVP candidate, but a guy, you know, you talk about hot hand and in a season of small sample size, five for five means a lot. Not on that particular day, like, you can't be, uh, you were not out. Nobody could get you out. So, so, uh, he rolled the dice and it, and it worked out. So it, uh, it kind of made me think a little bit about, uh, the the one five hit well certainly the, not the one I did have a couple I think but I had a five for five game for the Phillies and it was early in the season it was like in May and we were playing the Reds and uh, there was a player they had a pitcher named Manny Ibar and this guy could not get me out I think I was like five for six career off this guy so um, so of course wow. known for my uh, slugging percentage four of them were singles you know and the double probably hit the base and ricocheted so uh so i have five hits and it's it's the seventh inning and we're blowing them out we ended up beating the reds 14 to 1 so francona comes up to me and he's like hey man um you know what you, you don't need to you don't need to bat again like you're probably not going to bat again so why don't we just take you out you're five for five great day we're blowing them out let's get some other guys some at bats and, you know, take it take it to the house. So he kind of asked me, and I was like, okay, fine. I didn't think I was hitting again. Of course, what happens? We bat around, <laughs> we come again. 
And I have to sit there <laughs> and like my sixth advantage, like I got a chance to go six for six. Uh, but I had to watch Kevin Sefcik come in and uh, and hit for me. So unfortunately, I made the the mistake of you know, allowing myself to be pulled early at a five for five game and missed that sixth opportunity. So that kind yeah. of thing. They might maybe, have intentionally walked it, you. Yeah, it's, uh, because I, I still would have swung though, wherever it was. I was still hacking. <laughs> <laughs> In those days, so. you can still do that. Uh, yeah, you, well, you know, um, the funny thing is, no manager had walked a hitter to get to a guy who was five for five since basically back then. Uh, it had not happened since 1996. Last manager to do this was Johnny <laughs> Oates when he was managing the Rangers. He intentionally walked Tim Salmon two times in extra innings to pitch to Garrett Anderson, who had also started that game by going five for five. It worked the first time. He thought, what the heck, let's do it again. Didn't work, <laughs> Didn't work quite that well the second time because Garrett Anderson then won the game for his sixth hit. So this is what can happen in the craziness of baseball. That's a, that's a great one, Doug. Um, so for me – I only want to roll the clock back to last Thursday at Yankee Stadium because it's absolutely mind-blowing what the Yankees did in the fourth inning of that game. Uh, we got a little play-by-play here. Let's have the mayor reminded us what that sounded like. That one is driven deep to right center field. There it goes. See ya. Into the Yankee bullpen. LeMayu fights one off. Fly ball deep right, going back Hernandez. That's gone! And it's 6-2 Yankees as they go back-to-back. Luke Voigt wraps one deep into right center field. There it goes! See ya! Back to back to back. High fly ball, right field. There it goes! They've done it again. They set a big league record. 17 home runs in three games. High fly ball, deep left center. There it goes! How about five? See ya! The Bronx Bombers are flexing. Michael K. See ya! And then another see ya! And then another one! And another one! And another one! That's Doug, that was the Yankees hitting five home runs in one inning. It, would, <laughs> it sounded like an auction. It sounded like they were auctioning. <laughs> hey, what a home run! Home run! Home run! Home run! Hey, what a home run! <laughs> right! That, w- that would have been a great occasion to do the John Sterling. Belly to belly, belly to belly to belly to belly to belly. But anyway, it, not only did they hit five homers in one inning, Doug, they hit all five off the same pitcher, Chase Anderson. And not just any pitcher. This was a pitcher who did not start the game. Okay? So let's put that in perspective, man. Uh, no other active pitcher has ever allowed five home runs in relief in the same game. Okay. And Chase Anderson did it in the same inning. So then I kept going. I could only find four other relievers in the last 50 years who allowed five homers in a game. And Chase Anderson did it in one inning. In fact, it was five out of six hitters. It was back-to-back-to-back, oh. to back to back, all on the first pitch. Then he got an out, and he, then another set of back-to-back. So think about it. Twelve teams still haven't hit five homers in a game this year, and the Yankees hit five in a span of 14. 
15 pitches. That is baseball, oh. right? Oh, man. I mean, it's just 2020 baseball, too, on top of it, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's just like, what is going on? And uh, I mean, I'm not sure. Like I said, I could probably set up a T in short center field and have trouble hitting five out of six over the fence. I mean, I, I'm trying to imagine like, yes, I mean, hitting off a position player that doesn't happen. So it, incredible. It, it happened in a real game involving real people. I, you know, I did, I posted on Twitter uh, at one point, the, the stats of Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth for the 27 Yankees. And then the stats of the Yankees in that series, because this was not even the game where they scored 20 runs in the same series. And the entire team hit like Luth, Ruth and Gehrig. Right. Not, right. Not, OPS. Right. Yeah. Oh, the OPS blew them away. But it, it's, it, we, anyway, we don't want to spend the whole show on that game, but wow. All right, that's going to do it for another really fun Starkville. Let's remind you again, Starkville is available in its entirety, absolutely free, everywhere you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and follow Starkville on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon these days, pretty much everywhere you find your podcasts. And of course, you can still find us at the Athletic app and the Athletic website. And if you'd like to read our work or any of the fantastic writing on our site, there's no better sports writing being done anywhere than you'll find in The Athletic. So if you've thought about subscribing, we are currently offering a fantastic special. Just $1 a month. So check us out. You'll be grateful that you did. We're still offering that, right? Okay. And also remember, you too can be part of this podcast just like Austin Gates today. We're now inviting the listener who submits the most fun trivia question of the week to join us right here in Starkville and demonstrate one more time. There's almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong, except for that one that Austin asked us today. (laughs) (laughs) To be part of it, just submit a great baseball trivia question. You could email to us at starkville at theathletic.com, or you can do what Austin did today. Hit us up on Twitter. How would they find Doug Glanville, for instance? Oh, yeah. It's easy. At Doug Glanville. Very exciting. D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. And you can tweet at me at J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. That's Jason with a Y-S-T. Just hashtag your questions. Hashtag Starkville QS. Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Bob Costas for visiting us. Thanks to Austin Gates for the trivia question. Thanks to our mayor, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. We will see you next week on Starkville. Starkville.